This episode is brought to you by Pronamel. Not all our favorite foods and drinks are BFFs with our teeth. Salad dressing, seltzers, and fruits can be enamel enemies. So if you eat or drink those things regularly, your enamel could be at risk. And once it's gone, it's gone. Pronamel Intensive Enamel Repair penetrates deep into the enamel surface, locking in vital minerals to repair acid-weakened enamel. And with new Pronamel Repair mouthwash, you can enhance that repair beyond just brushing. Pronamel is the number one dentist-recommended brand for acid erosion, so buy Pronamel Repair anywhere you buy toothpaste or mouthwash. Visit Pronamel.com. Let's hit it! Give me a vacation! Vacation! Give me a wave! Surfing! Give me a city tour! The trolley! Give me animals! The zoo! Give me some sea life! <laughs> Give me museums! Park. Give me a woo! What's that spell? San Diego! If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your family vacation at san diego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. The Kakadu Plum is an Australian native superfood containing 100 times more vitamin C than oranges. So why have you never heard of it? PR. No one's drinking a Kakadu smoothie? I'm J.B. Smoove, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a gigillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at slash hypergig for details. Me. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no spy girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. For just being me. Amy Winehouse. Back to Black. Directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R. Under 17. Not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. Hello and welcome to Savor. I'm Annie Reese. And I'm Lauren Vogelbaum. And today we've got another food fairy tale for you. We do. We do. It's, uh, well, it has many names or two names. <laughs> two as many. Um, it's a story by the Brothers Grimm called Sometimes the Almond Tree and Sometimes the Juniper Tree. And uh, yeah, yeah, we've done one food fairy tale in the past. If y'all haven't heard our Goblin Market episode. Um, the, the idea here is that we take a story in the public domain yep. um, that's about food in some way and do a dramatic reading with some of our friends here around the HowStuffWorks slash iHeartMedia office. And then Dylan does his magic with uh, with the score and some effects, and then we maybe discuss it just a little bit. Yeah, and uh, the last episode that we did like this was really fun to do, and I think, I think... It came out pretty well, so I would go check it out if you haven't heard it. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, the guys from Stuff to Blow Your Mind, Robert Lamb and Joe McCormick, joined us, and they are mad geniuses, and and it's a poem by Christina Rossetti, so it's beautiful. Yes, and um, already going to solicit, if you have any ideas for future public domain stories <laughs> that include food, fairy tales that we can do, we really enjoy doing these, so send those our way. And this one was a great one that that you found, Lauren. Did I find it? I didn't find it. <laughs> I don't know if it just materialized. <laughs> oh. You are going to do this one. <laughs> we wanted to do one for Halloween that involved cannibalism because right. that is 
a popular trope in fairy tales. Cannibalism, yeah. yeah. Um, and so, yeah, so we thought like, oh, man, cannibalism, that's fun for Halloween. But it didn't happen for Halloween. And now it's Thanksgiving and slightly less appropriate. But still fun, right? It's about eating. <laughs> it is about eating. There's other things. There's other <laughs> and, food. And family and thankfulness. Yeah, there's a lot of themes. We totally <laughs> planned this whole thing. And you'll never guess who wrote this tale. Well, I already mentioned it, so. What? Yeah, sorry, it's, a, it's the Brothers Grimm, yeah. Oh, yeah, Yeah, okay. that's right. I was going to do a whole. Oh, I'm sorry. That's no, okay. <laughs> we can take that back, or we can keep this. No, we should keep it. Okay. So people know what it's like. Come on, we're all fallible humans. Yes, and, and that's what fairy tales seek to expose. Exactly. Yes. Okay. Jacob and Wilhelm Grimm first published their collection of Kinder und Hausmärchen, that's children and household tales, in Germany in 1812. It was over a decade's worth of work that they began when they were still in their teens. They were born just a year apart uh, in 1785 and 1786, and the brothers faced their, their own share of young hardship, much like we hear about in some of these stories. They began supporting their mother and three younger siblings after their father passed in 1796 and became de facto heads of the family after their mother followed him in 1808. It was a time, in general, of, of great upheaval in the area. The Napoleonic Wars were raging. And part of the work that they were doing in school and in Wilhelm's work as a librarian was in the emerging field of philology. That's uh, the study of, of language in written and oral texts throughout history. And they would go on to do some pioneering work in, like, tracing sound shifts in the German language and in founding the German dictionary. But back to their story collection. In 1808, the same year that their mother died, a poet friend working on a book of literary fairy tales started asking them to collect any folk tales they might find for him. And he wound up abandoning the project, so the brothers published their collection themselves in two volumes, 86 tales in 1812, and then another 70 tales three years later. And they'd refine the stories a lot over the next four decades, leading up to what's considered the definitive edition of 210 tales being published in 1857. Wilhelm worked with the stories, shifting them from their original oral tradition style to a more literary style in the interest of, of appealing to the public. Mm -hmm. And the stories were never meant to be read by children. No. <laughs> not, not specifically, no. No, and certainly not Certainly not at that point. It would shift later, and we'll talk about that later. But yeah, the, the Grimm brothers were looking to preserve these tales that had been passed around by oral storytellers. You know, these were stories that people would tell each other to get through their days and nights of work. That's why you have so much repetition and verse in these types of stories, because they're oral. Um, in their preface, the Grimm brothers said, in German, this is a translation, wherever the tales still exist, they continue to live in such a way that nobody ponders whether they are good or bad, poetic or crude. People know them and love them because they have simply absorbed them in a habitual way. And they take pleasure in them without having any reason. This is exactly why the custom of storytelling is so marvelous. Yeah, I, don't, I find it so fascinating that the tales that they collected were tales of, of hardship and wonder. They were cruel and surreal and figurative and Although collected partially as part of the growing nationalistic German movement, um, they, they hold universal fears and hopes and values. Yeah. Yeah. And cannibalism. A lot of the time. <laughs> so, <laughs> so on this Thanksgiving weekend, uh, we wanted to present you with the almond tree, sometimes translated as the juniper tree. And 
I mucked around with a couple translations here. Um, it's mostly an almond tree version translated by one Lucy Crane, first published in 1882. There's a few lines in here from Margaret Hunt's version, which is a juniper tree one and was first published in 1884. But, you know. It's a mishmash. It is. It's, 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 a, it's a spicing. It's a, it's yeah, a peppering. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so, without further ado, well, okay, some ado because we're going to go to an ad break, but then when we get back, the almond tree. This episode is brought to you by Pronamel. Not all our favorite foods and drinks are BFFs with our teeth. Salad dressing, seltzers, and fruits can be enamel enemies. So if you eat or drink those things regularly, your enamel could be at risk. And once it's gone, it's gone. Pronamel Intensive Enamel Repair penetrates deep into the enamel surface, locking in vital minerals to repair acid-weakened enamel. And with new Pronamel Repair mouthwash, you can enhance that repair beyond just brushing. Pronamel is the number one dentist-recommended brand for acid erosion, so buy Pronamel Repair anywhere you buy toothpaste or mouthwash. Visit Pronamel.com. Let's hit it! Give me a vacation! Vacation! Give me a wave! Surfing! Give me a city tour! The trolley! Give me animals! The zoo! Give me some sea life! <laughs> Give me museums! Park. Give me a woo! What's that spell? San Diego! If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your family vacation at san diego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. Me. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no spy girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. The big screen. I want to be remembered for just being me. Amy Winehouse, Back to Black, directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R, under 17, not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. Today I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm JB Smoove, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at slash hypergig for details. And we're back. Thank you, sponsor. And we present The Almond Tree. A long time ago, perhaps as much as 2,000 years... There was a rich man, and he had a beautiful and pious wife, and they loved each other very much. They had no children, though they wished greatly for some, and the wife prayed for one day and night. Now, in the courtyard in front of their house stood an almond tree. And one day in winter the wife was standing beneath it, and paring herself an apple, and as she pared it she cut her finger, and the blood fell upon the snow. Ah said the woman, sighing deeply and looking down at the blood. If only I could have a child as red as blood and white as snow. And as she said these words, her heart suddenly grew light, and she felt sure she should have her wish. So she went back to the house, and when a month had passed, the snow was gone. In two months, everything was green. In three months, the flowers sprang out of the earth. In four months, the trees were in full leaf, and the branches were thickly entwined. 
the little birds began to sing so that the woods echoed and the blossoms fell from the trees. When the fifth month had passed, the wife stood under the almond tree, and it smelt so sweet that her heart leaped within her, and she fell on her knees for joy. When the sixth month had gone, the fruit was thick and fine, and she remained still. And the seventh month, she gathered the almonds and ate them eagerly, and was sick and sorrowful. And when the eighth month had passed, she called to her husband and said, weeping, If I die, bury me under the almond tree. Then she was comforted and happy until the ninth month had passed. And then she bore a child as white as snow and as red as blood. And when she saw it, her joy was so great that she died. Her husband buried her under the almond tree, and he wept sore. After some time, he was more at ease, and though he still wept, he could bear it. And after some time longer, he took another wife. His second wife bore him a daughter, and his first wife's child was a son, as red as blood and as white as snow. Whenever the wife looked at her daughter, she felt great love for her. But whenever she looked at the little boy, evil thoughts came into her heart of how she could get all of her husband's money for her daughter, and how the boy stood in the way, and so she took a great hatred to him, and drove him from one corner to another, and gave him a buffet here and a cuff there, so that the poor child was always in disgrace. When he came back after school hours, there was no peace for him. Once, when the wife went into the room upstairs, her little daughter followed her, and said, Mother, give me an apple. Yes, my child, said the mother and gave her a fine apple out of the chest, and the chest had a great heavy lid with a strong iron lock. Mother, said the little girl, shall not my brother have one too? That was what the mother had expected, and she said, Yes, when he comes back from school. And when she saw from the window that he was coming, an evil thought crossed her mind, and she snatched the apple and took it from her little daughter, saying, You shall not have it before your brother. Then she threw the apple into the chest and shut the lid. Then the little boy came in at the door, and she said to him in a kind tone, but with evil looks, My son, will you have an apple? Mother, said the boy, how dreadful you look. Yes, give me an apple. Then she spoke as kindly as before, holding up the cover of the chest. Come here and take one out for yourself. And as the boy was stooping over the open chest, Crash went the lid down, so that his head flew off among the red apples. But then the woman felt great terror and wondered how she could escape the blame. And she went to the chest of drawers in her bedroom and took a white handkerchief out of the nearest drawer, and fitting the head to the neck, she bound them with the handkerchief so that nothing should be seen, and set him on a chair before the door with an apple in his hand. Then came little Marjorie into the kitchen to her mother, who was standing before the fire, stirring a pot of hot water. Mother, said Marjorie, my brother is sitting before the door, and he has an apple in his hand and looks very pale. I asked him to give me the apple, but he did not answer me. It seems very strange. Go again to him, said the mother. And if he will not answer you, give him a box on the ear. So Marjorie went again and said, Brother, give me the apple. But as he took no notice, she gave him a box to the ear, and his head fell off at which she was greatly terrified, and began to cry and scream, and ran to her mother and said, Oh, mother, I have knocked my brother's head off, and cried and screamed and would not cease. Oh, Marjorie, 
said her mother. What have you done? But keep quiet that no one may see there is anything the matter. It can't be helped now. We will put him out of the way safely. The mother took the little boy and chopped him in pieces and put him in the pot and made him into soup. But Marjorie stood by weeping and weeping and all her tears fell into the pot and there was no need of any salt. When the father came home and sat down to the table, he said, Where is my son? But the mother was filling a great dish full of black broth, and Marjorie was crying bitterly, for she could not refrain. Then the father said again, Where is my son? Oh, said the mother. He has gone into the country to his great uncles to stay for a little while. What should he go for? said the father. And without bidding me goodbye too? Oh, he wanted to go so much, and he asked me to let him stay there six weeks. He will be well taken care of. Dear me, said the father. I'm quite sad about it. It was not right of him to go without bidding me goodbye. With that, he began to eat, saying, Marjorie, what are you crying for? Your brother will certainly come back. After a while, he said, Well, wife, the food is very good. Give me some more. And the more he ate the more he wanted, until he had eaten it all up, and he threw the bones under the table. Then Marjorie went to her chest of drawers and took one of her best handkerchiefs from the bottom drawer and picked up all the bones from under the table and tied them up in her handkerchief and went out at the door, crying bitterly. She laid them in the green grass under the almond tree, and immediately her heart grew light again, and she wept no more. The almond tree began to wave to and fro, and the boughs drew closer together and then parted, just like a clapping of hands for joy. Then a mist rose from the tree, and in the center of this mist there burned a fire, and out of the fire a beautiful bird arose, and singing most sweetly, soared high into the air, and when he had flown away, the almond tree remained as it was before, but the handkerchief full of bones was gone. Marjorie felt quite glad and lighthearted, just as if her brother were alive again. So she went back merrily into the house and had her dinner. The bird, when it flew away, perched on the roof of a goldsmith's house and began to sing. It was my mother who murdered me. It was my father who hate of me. It was my sister Marjorie who all my bones in pieces found. Them in a handkerchief she bound and laid them under the Almond tree, kiwit, 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 I cry. Oh, what a beautiful bird am I. The goldsmith was sitting in his shop, making a golden chain. And when he heard the bird who was sitting on his roof and singing, he started up to go and look. And as he passed over his threshold, he lost one of his slippers. And he went into the middle of the street with a slipper on one foot and only a sock on the other, with his apron on and the gold chain in one hand and the pincers in the other. And so he stood in the sunshine, looking up at the bird. Bird, he said, how beautifully you sing. Do sing that piece over again. No, said the bird. I do not sing for nothing twice. If you will give me that gold chain, I will sing again. 
Very well, said the goldsmith. Here is the gold chain. Now, do as you said. Down came the bird and took the gold chain in his right claw, perched in front of the goldsmith, and sang, It was my mother who murdered me. It was my father who hate of me. Then the bird flew to a shoemaker's and perched on his roof and sang, It was my mother who murdered me. When the shoemaker heard, he ran out of his door in his shirt sleeves and looked up at the roof of his house, holding his hand to shade his eyes from the sun. Why, bird, he said, how beautifully you sing. Then he called in at his door. Wife, wife, come out directly. Here is a bird singing beautifully. Shh, only listen. She bound and laid them. Then he called his daughter, all his children and acquaintance, both young men and maidens, and they came up the street and gazed on the bird and saw how beautiful he was and what fine red and green feathers he had and how like real gold his neck was and how the eyes in his head shone like stars. Bird, bird, said the shoemaker. Do sing that piece over again. No, said the bird. I may not sing for nothing twice. You must give me something. Wife, said the man. Go into the shop. On on the top shelf stands a pair of red shoes. Bring them here. So the wife went and brought the shoes. Now, bird, said the man, sing us that piece again. And the bird came down and took the shoes in his left claw and flew up again to the roof and sang, It was my mother who murdered me. And when he had finished, he flew away, with the chain in his right claw and the shoes in his left claw. And he flew until he reached a mill. And the mill went, Clip, clap, clip, clap, clip, clap. And in the mill sat twenty millersmen hewing a millstone. Hick, hack, hick, hack, hick, hack. While the mill was going, Clip, clap, clip, clap, clip, clap. And the bird perched on a linden tree, that stood in front of the mill and sang, It was my mother who murdered me. Here, one of the men looked up. It was my father who hate of me. Then two more looked up and listened. It was my sister Marjorie. Here, four more looked up. Who all my bones in pieces found Them in a handkerchief she bound Now there were only eight left hewing And laid them under the almond tree Now only five Kiwit, 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 I cry Now only one Oh, what a beautiful bird am I. At length, the last one left off, and he only heard the end. Bird, he said, how, how beautifully you sing. Let, let me hear that all. Sing it again. No, said the bird. I may not sing it twice for nothing. If you will give me the millstone, I will sing it again. Indeed, said the man. If it belonged to me alone, you should have it. Said the others. Then the bird came down and all the twenty millers heaved up the stone with poles. And the bird stuck his head through the hole in the middle. And with the millstone round his neck, he flew up to the tree and sang. It was my mother who murdered me. And when he had finished, he spread his wings 
having in the right claw the chain, and in the left claw the shoes, and round his neck the millstone, and he flew away to his father's house. In the parlor sat the father, the mother, and Marjorie at the table. The father said, How light-hearted and cheerful I feel. Nay, said the mother. I feel very low, just as if a great storm were coming. But Marjorie sat weeping, and the bird came flying and perched on the roof. Oh, said the father. I feel so joyful, and the sun is shining so bright. It is as if I were going to meet with an old friend. Nay, said the wife. I feel so anxious, my teeth chatter, and there is fire in my veins. And she pulled at the lacing of her stays to get air, and Marjorie sat down in a corner and wept, holding her plate before her until it was quite full of tears. Then the bird perched on the almond tree and sang, It was my mother who murdered me. And the mother stopped her ears and hid her eyes and would neither see nor hear. But there was a roaring in her ears like the most violent storm, and in her eyes a quivering and burning as of lightning. It was my father who hate of me. Oh, mother, said the father, there is a beautiful bird singing so freely, and the sun shines, and there's a smell sweet as cinnamon. It was my sister Marjorie. Marjorie hid her face in her lap and wept. But the father said, I must go out to see the bird. Oh, do not go, said the wife. I feel as if the house were on fire. But the man went out and looked at the bird. Who all my bones in pieces found, them in a handkerchief she bound, and laid them under the almond tree. Kiwit, 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 I cry, oh, what a beautiful bird am I. With that, the bird let fall the gold chain upon his father's neck, and it fitted him exactly. So he went indoors and said, Look at what a beautiful chain the bird has given me. Then his wife was so terrified that she fell all along the floor, and her cap fell off her head. Then the bird began again to sing. It was my mother who murdered me. Oh, groaned the mother. That I were a thousand fathoms underground so as not to hear it. It was my father who hate of me. Then the woman fell down again as if she were dead. It was my sister Marjorie. Oh, said Marjorie. I'll go out too and see if the bird will give me anything. And so she went. Who all my bones in pieces found, them in a handkerchief she bound. Then he threw the shoes down to her. And laid them under the almond tree. Kiwit, kiwit, kiwit. I cry, oh, what a beautiful bird am I. And poor Marjorie all at once felt happy and joyful and put on her red shoes and danced and jumped for joy. Oh, dear, she said. I felt so sad before I went outside and now my heart is so light. He is a charming bird to have given me a pair of red shoes. 
But the mother's hair stood on end and looked like flame, and she said, I feel as though the world were coming to an end. I too will go outside and see if my heart feels lighter. And just as she went outside the door, crash, the bird flew down the millstone on her head and crushed her flat. The father and Marjorie rushed out and saw smoke and flames of fire rise up from the place. But when that had gone by, there stood the little brother, and he took his father and Marjorie by the hand, and all three felt happy and content, and they went indoors and sat to the table and had their dinner. And that brings us to the end of our story, of our rendition of this story. And we're going to have some discussion about it. But first, we're going to pause for one more quick break for a word from our sponsor. This episode is brought to you by Pronamel. Not all our favorite foods and drinks are BFFs with our teeth. Salad dressing, seltzers, and fruits can be enamel enemies. So if you eat or drink those things regularly, your enamel could be at risk. And once it's gone, it's gone. Pronamel Intensive Enamel Repair penetrates deep into the enamel surface, locking in vital minerals to repair acid-weakened enamel. And with new Pronamel Repair mouthwash, you can enhance that repair beyond just brushing. Pronamel is the number one dentist-recommended brand for acid erosion, so buy Pronamel Repair anywhere you buy toothpaste or mouthwash. Visit Pronamel.com. Ready? Let's go. Give me a vacation. Vacation! Give me a golf course. 70 courses! Let's get a water sport. Can I get excursions? We're watching. Time for chill vibes. Beach How about a garden tour? Give me a dolphin. What's that spell? San Diego! If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your trip at San Diego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. Me. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no spy girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. For just being me. Amy Winehouse, Back to Black, directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R, under 17, not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. Today I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm J.B. Smoove, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at slash hypergig for details. And we're back. Thank you, sponsor. Yes, thank you. Now let's discuss. Yes, because, oh, that was weird as all heck. <laughs> it was. <laughs> it's quite strange. Uh, and there's a lot going on here. A oh, lot. yeah. Um, a couple a couple general notes. I, I do want to put in that the Grimm's work and, and popularity of these stories in general helped kickstart the entire European fascination with folklore in the 1800s. Huh. Um, so that's pretty significant. Very much so, yeah, I would um, say. And also a word about the translation. 
So Lucy Crane was a writer, musician, and art critic in Victorian England. She collaborated on her version of Household Tales with her brother, an illustrator by the name of Walter Crane. And in comparison to other folks working with the Grimm's material at the time, like Margaret Hunt, who was a philologist, Crane wanted to create a book that was pleasing above being, like, strictly accurate to the source materials. She was counting on the illustrations to tell part of the story, and she was particularly keen to create lively rhymes and rhythms when the stories included poetical verse, like we heard here. Mm -hmm. Um, Part of her other work was in nursery rhymes, so it kind of makes sense. And critics see Crane's translation as being part of this shift toward fairy tales being considered children's literature rather than adult or scholarly literature. It, It is true to the tone of the original works, but it's meant to be read aloud and enjoyed in English. Hunt's version is meant more to be studied. Um, When we chose this story, I decided to use Crane's translation because because of that canter to the language, but I also wanted to incorporate some of Hunt's wording because it's so stark and weird and poetic in its, like, literalism, if that makes any sense. Yeah, yeah, it does, and this is really cool. It was something that I I was interested to learn because um, I think I've said before on this show, uh, me and my uh, old college roommate who listens to the show. So hi, Katie, for listening. Oh, hi, Katie. Um, we used to do an incredibly dorky but very much <laughs> beloved Halloween tradition where we would light, because, you know, we were in a dorm room. So we had this, like, small <laughs> pumpkin, and we would light it like a little birthday candle. <laughs> and uh, we would read um, these stories aloud, like one one horror story, oh, short man. horror story. That's great. Night. Yeah, it was great. But um, I do love that there is this distinction between some that are better heard aloud and some that are better read. Yeah. And I do have, I got as a gift oh, forever ago, um, that all of the, the Grimm, Brothers Grimm fairy tales in this, like, beautiful book. And um, I'm going to go because it. As we record this, it is Thanksgiving weekend. Mm-hmm. Like we yeah. we have run out of our buffer that we had <laughs> at one point. Oh, it was such a nice buffer. <laughs> it was, and it is gone. It's super gone. It's gobbled up. Um, <laughs> but I'm going to go home and see if I can find that book and see if this Ooh. story is in there. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I would be curious if it's if it's illustrated. I'd be really curious to see if there's an illustration there. I'm really excited. Oh, yeah. Um, And the, the episode art that... I'm nearly positive that we used. Yes. Um, <laughs> Publishing a strain. Is um is one of the illustrations from the book that Walter Crane did back in the 1880s. So Yeah, yeah. Because I believe it's in the public domain, which again, we love that. Yay! <laughs> we love that. Jazz hands. Yeah. So let's let's talk about some analysis. Yeah, and I love this first thing that you found. This is so good. Yeah. Apparently, uh J.R.R. Tolkien used this very story as an example of the negative impact of censorship when it comes to children. He said, either don't censor it or don't tell them the story. That was basically oh, his viewpoint. Oh, wow. Yeah. And, oh, man, J.R.R. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so good. And I have kind of a, I guess it's not that long. It looks long, but it's not that long. Quote from him, kind of expounding on this. The beauty and horror of the juniper tree with its exquisite and tragic beginning, the abominable cannibal stew, the gruesome bones, the gay and vengeful bird spirit coming out of a mist that rose from the tree, has remained with me since childhood, and yet always the chief flavor of that tale lingering in the memory was not beauty or horror, but distance in a great abyss of time. 
Without the stew and bones, which children are now too often spared and mollified versions of Grimm, that vision would largely have been lost. I do not think I was harmed by the horror in the fairy tale setting out of whatever dark beliefs and practices of the past it may have come. Such stories have now a mythical or total effect, an effect quite independent of the findings of comparative folklore, in capital letters, mm-hmm. and one which it cannot spoil or explain. They open a door on other time. And if we pass through, though only for a moment, we stand outside our own time, outside time itself, maybe. Oh, wow. Yes. That's wild. All about this the almond tree or the juniper tree. I love that. Yeah. Ah. Yeah. Um, and, and yeah, and it does have that kind of timeless quality. When, I don't know, when I was reading it, and especially when we were speaking it, we kept remarking on how beautiful and different the language is than anything that we would use today and how stilted it, it can sound, but in this really beautiful way that doesn't, I don't know, it really did, it really did take me out of a time and a place. Yeah. I, I think a lot of times, a lot of, for me, it's easy to dismiss these things as like that was so long ago, it doesn't feel real. Right. And if something can capture that and just remind me that these this was like really a struggle for people or this was how they spoke or whatever it is to connect myself truly to that time. I think it's a pretty uh, powerful and an excellent work. It's one of the reasons I love The Witch, a horror movie. Oh, yes. Oh, so much. Oh, the language in that is so good. Yeah. And a lot of times when you read that, I feel like in my case, it just feels so distant. It doesn't feel real. But that movie felt very real. Oh, super real. (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> Heckin' really real. I still am curious about the taste of butter thing. It's a continual conversation in this office. But back to what uh, Tolkien was saying, I, I really agree with him also about, like, don't, don't censor stuff. Like, kids can handle it or just don't – or just wait until they're older to give them the story. When they can't handle it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and this, this story went on to inspire Briar Rose, which went on to inspire Sleeping Beauty. Yeah, there's entire beautiful, like, trees, no pun intended for once, um, <laughs> of, of how a lot of these stories shifted and developed into other different versions. And I also wanted to include here a quote from one Maria Tatar, who did a recent translation of the Brothers Grimm called the Annotated Brothers Grimm. And she said about the juniper tree, We start with myths of creation, which often feature dismemberment and reconstitution of bodies. Fairy tales give us loss and restitution in powerful ways. Even if you suffer mutilation, there is regeneration and the promise of resurrection. I think that's kind of what this is about. Yeah. And let's talk about some of those tropes. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Uh, And let's start with a big one, the evil stepmother. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Performed beautifully by Julie Douglas. Mm -hmm, (laughs) mm -hmm. We were like— really want Julie to do this, but we don't want to offend her by saying (laughs) (laughs) we think you'd be a great evil stepmother. Because she was our super, like our executive producer at the time. And so we were sort of like, hey, hey, boss, do you want to be our evil stepmother? That's mm." Don't read too much into it. (laughs) (laughs) No, but she was was totally game and she did a great (laughs) job. And I, I mean, if you, it's Cinderella 101 and it's Snow White, Hansel and Gretel. 
Sleepy Hollow, the Tim Burton one. Um, <laughs> the excellent Mary Kay Nashley film, It Takes Two, which I recently rewatched for the first time and is great because Steve Gutenberg makes his millions off of burgeoning cell phone technology. So everyone go back and rewatch that movie. It's on Amazon Prime. <laughs> I didn't follow you on that last one, but I'm always glad when you get a Mary-Kate and Ashley reference in here. Thank thank you for letting (laughs) me have that moment. And I was reading, I actually read not one but two 40-plus page essays about evil stepmothers in preparation for this, and you're not going to hear much of any of that, but I've got a lot of thoughts on it. Oh, Um, wow. Oh, man. Do I I sense a Stuff Mom Never Told You episode forthcoming? Perhaps. Uh, (laughs) It made me think about a lot of things, and one of the authors— of these essays, she said, when you hear stepmother, there's a good chance that you automatically put evil in front of it in your head, that it's as linked as peanut butter and jelly. Heck. Yeah. And um, she goes on to write that she started to view Cinderella as the story begins at the end, and maybe Cinderella gets divorced, and she becomes somebody's stepmom. (laughs) Oh, no. Yes. Because she might be a good stepmom. And also they reframed it um, in terms of the time. And anyway, I have a lot of thoughts on Cinderella. And speaking of the times, the times have changed. Marriage used to be much more of an economical decision. Yeah, romantic love didn't happen until very recently. Yeah, so, so women didn't really have a role in deciding who they were going to marry. Oftentimes, not all the time, but oftentimes. And it, it was this, yeah, purely kind of money financial move yeah. on both sides. Sure. I mean, and that's not to say that spouses wouldn't love each other and that romantic yeah. love didn't exist. But no. it just wasn't formalized in marriage, especially the way that, the way that like, for example, the diamond industry peddles the concept. Sure. <laughs> we could do so many, like, side things here, but we're going to focus. Okay. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. Um, yeah, women didn't really have a way to make money in, in the context of when this was written um, uh, and, unless their husband and his children died, then they might inherit things ah. that they could own. So the stakes were really high, um, and in theory— in, in terms of these stories, these fairy tales that were written during this time, there was no real push for a stepmother to love her stepchildren, especially if she had children of her own that right. she wanted to inherit. To inherit anything. Right. Yeah. Um, and that is very, very different from these are modern times. In most places, hopefully, fingers crossed. Yes. Indeed. Right. Also, women were far more likely to die in childbirth those days than they are currently. So this was a situation that you might be encountering more often. Yeah, it, it, might wasn't, be a, it wasn't as uncommon. Yeah, it was a concern, kind of a societal concern. Yeah, oh yeah. Mm-hmm. Which, as we have said before on this show and others, um, all those concerns get wrapped up into these horrific yeah. tales. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, the, the conflicting loyalties for stepchildren, that's something that I read a lot about in the, these essays. An evil stepmother in some ways is easier to co- compartmentalize. It's less complicated. I, she's evil, so I can hate her mm-hmm. um, compared to the complex nuance and emotions that all humans experience. <laughs> <laughs> I did come across this stat and several of the things I read that step parents are about 70 times more likely to kill their stepchildren 
than birth parents and about 40 times likelier to abuse their stepchildren. But, but those sound horrible. These cases are still really, really rare. Very. Yeah. Yeah. It was uh, part of this whole, like, can we discredit this trope? Oh, wow. Um, study. And, and, like, mostly you can, but that's, that stat <laughs> did come up. Uh, and I oh. read uh, so many women who are step-parents, who are stepmothers, saying that this trope, when they see their stepchildren or even their own children watching Cinderella or Snow White and kind of internalizing this. Wow. And that it, it does impact their relationship and it makes them self-doubt their abilities to parent. So it does have an impact. Oh, wow. These things we're talking about have like a real world impact. That's not surprising, but very striking and also sad. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, it, man, I could just go on and on, but in some word, in some languages, the word for stepmother uh, means it translates to lesser mother or less than mother. Oh, wow. Yeah. Why do we do that? Humans, get it together and be nice to each other. <laughs> I feel like this has become a defense of the evil stepmother <laughs> who eats, <laughs> who, who cooks her. Oh. Anyway. Yeah. And in this particular story, in some translations, the stepmother is possessed by the devil. Yeah. Um. I, I think what pushed me over originally into liking the Crane translation versus the Hunt translation is that Margaret Hunt, yeah, used this very specific language that was like, and then the devil came into the mother and made her say this kind yeah. of language. And I and I found that from a modern standpoint, from my personal standpoint, a less compelling than just the internal struggle of the mother being more, you know, literal and less figurative. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, ultimately, this this kind of Evil stepmother Trope, yeah. um, versus Dichotomy. like the beautiful, ideal, maternalistic, like, perfect almost, mother. Almost like Virginia, strangely. Yeah, yeah. Like the Mother Mary kind of thing. Yeah. Um, the Who in this story, she dies of happiness when she has, has a, a baby. baby. Oh, goodness yeah. my gracious. Right. Um, both, both of these are very reductive. And I, <laughs> gosh, I could keep going on and on. <laughs> um, Finding Nemo. They were saying how, like, the mother dies in the very beginning as a way to show, like, how good of a dad the right. dad can be. Yeah. Uh, so the point being this is still happening. We are still seeing this. We are progressing and making a larger range of films. Yeah, yeah. But it is still pretty prevalent. Yeah. And I, what was, was like, Brave, the very first Disney movie where the, the mother yeah. was, like, living and was not an evil stepmother? Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, Brave made me cry. I liked that movie. Made me cry, too. Oh, we're going to be okay, Annie. Yes. Let's talk about cannibalism. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> <laughs> because like we said, the, this does come up a lot in fairy tales. Oh, yeah. And going back to me and my roommate reading those horror stories um, <laughs> during October, uh, the liver story, uh, there's different versions of this, but it's it's either... I think the two biggest ones are the revenge story of the the woman who, like, cuts out her husband's liver and feeds it to him. Uh-huh. Um, or a guy, a son or a husband who the wife is like, here's $5, go buy some liver tonight for dinner. And then he spends all of his money on candy. And <laughs> so he, he, of course, goes to a cemetery, digs up a body, takes the liver. It's like, here, I... I, I, bought, I, I bought this liver. Yeah, and then... 
the the corpse of the the dead the, guy comes like a knocking. Yeah, he says, "Johnny, I want my liver back. Johnny, I want my liver." <laughs> That's how I do it, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and he kills the guy. So, moral: don't spend all your money on candy. Definitely don't grave rob afterwards. <laughs> That's probably a better. <laughs> if you do spend all your money on candy, be like, "Look, mom, we're eating candy for dinner." <laughs> What's up? <laughs> That's a much better world to take from that story. Oh, no. Uh, Hansel and Gretel is another great example. And um, that freaky French song that I shared with you, there's this right. French Christmas song, and it sounds very upbeat. But the story is about a, a butcher who, he, like, three children come to his door, and he chops them up. And pickles them. And pickles them. And then but, old St. Nicholas is like, hey, did you tap up those kids? <laughs> this is a Christmas song. It's a Christmas song. But yeah, St. Nick just comes along and it's just like, like, like magic, magic, magic. You're no longer pickled. Congratulations, children. Yeah. And the butcher just kind of run, runs away. Yeah. Anyway, it's on YouTube. It's got a weird animation style to it as well. Um, I think it's called <laughs> Trois Petits Enfants, Three Little Children. Yeah. So... Search that out if you're looking for something Christmassy. <laughs> if you're if you're a native French speaker and you grew up with that story, please write in. I would love to hear about it. Yes. Oh, yes. Um, so th- there is often this association with food and death in fairy tales, and I suspect it has something to do with the lack of food safety. <laughs> oh, food, food safety and food security, sure. Back when these stories were written, um... Yes, Hansel and Gretel, we were, we almost did that one, um, but I, I suspect many of you have heard it. Yeah, yeah. yeah I wanted lot. to do this one because it was different. Yeah, but like the apple from Snow White, the poison apple. Um, and and aside from the pie, is it a pie? It's a pie in um, this story. In this one, it's a it's a stew. It's a stew, It's like yeah. a soup, yeah. There's a few different, There's a, in, in the Margaret Hunt translation, I think it was like, like, Black pudding, like yeah. black, like sausage. Right. Um, but for some reason, I liked the the idea of this black broth Ooh. that Crane wrote about. Yeah, give me chills. Right. But there was also an apple in the very beginning. Oh, right. That's Apples what... are yeah frequently, frequently a food, um, and that probably has to do with the story of Adam and Eve. Um, the aforementioned Maria Tatar said. The tales had their origins in a culture where famine was common and life was nasty, brutish, and short. The young and vulnerable may have indeed felt at risk when there was nothing to eat, even if, as we know, cannibalism was a fairly rare phenomenon. (laughs) One would hope, one would hope. Um, And another thing, a theme that we saw, and it's hard not to see, is the religious aspect here. Um, the Eucharist, the eating of the body of Christ, the drinking of his blood when it comes to the little boy, the cycle of life, birth, and death, the boy representing two bodies in one, giving birth and dying, destruction and renewal. Yeah, yeah, dismemberment and reconstitution, uh, regeneration, resurrection. Yeah, it's deep. It are, <laughs> are we just being very analytical? <laughs> Maybe both. Oh no, and it kind of reminded me of like the of, of myths about the phoenix and stuff like that. So it's I don't know. Yeah, yeah, the, with the bird and everything. Exactly. Mm-hmm. I'm still not sure. I'm still not sure about 
the specific meaning of the almond tree or the juniper tree. Yeah. Um, and that's one thing I didn't look into, unfortunately. I read there, there are actually at least two essays about this that are very um, methodical. <laughs> and one of them talked about the tree and how it represents the mother um, and uh, gave examples of other things, other objects in fairy tales like Briar Rose with the, the hedge of these objects that represent like guardianship oh, wow, and yeah. protecting after after death. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, there's one option. <laughs> and I and I know I've I've now quoted uh, Maria Tatar a whole bunch um, in this in this discussion portion. But I, there was a really great interview with her that the Salt did uh, NPR's the Salt did when that book of hers came out, and they ended the interview with something that I'm totally stealing for the ending of this now too because I thought it was so. It it relates so precisely to why we wanted to do this fairy tale series to begin with. Um, she said, Often a great meal is the highest good in the fairy tale. Yes, gold sparkles and shines, castles lure, and princesses await the transformative kiss, but there's almost nothing like a full stomach for those living in fairy tale worlds. There's a lesson there for all of us. Sure of that. Yeah. Yeah, we're sure of that, too. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and we love doing these. So, again, yeah, public domain yes. suggestions, <laughs> please send them our way. And if you are listening to this over the Thanksgiving holiday times, then uh, we hope you have some good some good holidays. Yeah, yeah. We, <laughs> we, hope, we hope that your family meals are slightly less fraught than this one. If uh, if you are staging a uh, hunger demonstration in order to protest the holiday, then we hope that you are taking care of yourself and also spending good quality time with people that you love and support you. So I think that just about wraps this one up. I think so. Um, if you would like to email us, we would love to hear from you. Our email is hello at saverpod.com. You can also find us on social media. We are on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at saverpod. We do hope to hear from you. Thank you, as always, to our super producer, Dylan Fagan. Thank you to Julie Douglas, our evil stepmother, Alex Williams, as the father. Annie was our stepdaughter. It was Marjorie. Yeah. I was the dying mother. That was fun. Um, (laughs) Super special thanks to Matt Frederick, our narrator, Ben Bolin, who played all of the villagers, and, and Noel Brown, who is the voice of the little brother and the bird. They're all... Their work made this what it is, and we very much thank them for their time. Um, If you'd like to hear more from them, you can find them on their show about uh, fringe theories and uh, conspiracy realism. It's called Stuff They Don't Want You to Know. It's available wherever you get your podcasts. Yes, and um, Ben and Noel also do Ridiculous History, if you would like to... To check that out, I think I've been on it. I think you've been on it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I was I was just on one that I think came out like two days ago. So oh. <laughs> about um, about Nestle. Oh, that's a sad story. I recapped some spam, some spam <laughs> knowledge. <laughs> recanned it. Re- <laughs> There's a spam pun there. <laughs> but yeah, we'll stop spamming you. We hope that <laughs> lots more good things are coming your way. This episode is brought to you by Pronamel. Not all our favorite foods and drinks are BFFs with our teeth. 
Salad dressing, seltzers, and fruits can be enamel enemies. So if you eat or drink those things regularly, your enamel could be at risk. And once it's gone, it's gone. Pronamel Intensive Enamel Repair penetrates deep into the enamel surface, locking in vital minerals to repair acid-weakened enamel. And with new Pronamel Repair mouthwash, you can enhance that repair beyond just brushing. Pronamel is the number one dentist-recommended brand for acid erosion, so buy Pronamel Repair anywhere you buy toothpaste or mouthwash. Visit Pronamel.com. Let's hit it. Give me a vacation. Vacation. Give me a wave. Surfing. Give me a city tour. The trolley. Give me animals. The zoo. Give me some sea life. <laughs> Give me museums. Park. Give me a woo. What's that spell? San Diego. If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your family vacation at sandiego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350-plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play.